Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. Why choose a Sleep Number Smart Bed? Can I make my side softer? Can I make my side firmer? Whenever I want? Can, Can we, we sleep, sleep cooler? Sleep Number does that. Cools up to eight times faster and lets you choose your ideal comfort on either side. 94% of Sleep Number smart sleepers report better sleep. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. To find a store near you, visit sleepnumber.com. The Greenland ice sheet has become a hotbed of climate change research in recent decades. The alarming rate of warming being observed has garnered attention from scientists across the globe, including today's guest, Dr. Tom Mote from the University of Georgia. He has ventured to the ice sheet himself to observe and measure the rapidly changing landscape, but his work also uses satellites to measure the changing continent. Today, we'll discuss the science behind this incredible melting and how these changes are altering global sea levels water currents, and even weather patterns. Tom, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thank you for having me. Well, this is a special treat because Tom's actually a colleague of mine at the University of Georgia. I want to start off with a little of his background, and then he's going to get the question that we always ask our Weather Geeks guests. Tom's the associ- associ- an associate dean in the Franklin College of Arts and Sciences at the University of Georgia. He received his PhD from the University of Nebraska in 1994, and he has a long list of achievements. I'm going to read some of them now, and then we'll get into some of the others. He's a fellow of both the American Meteorological Society and the American Association of Geographers. Uh, he received the Lifetime Achievement Award from the AAG Climate Specialty Group, and he's the Distinguished Research Professor at the University of Georgia, which is one of our highest honors there at the university. He has many others, and we'll get into those. But first, how did you get interested in weather and climate, meteorology, geography, all of these things that you do? You know, I think I was like many young uh boys, girls who eventually became interested in meteorology, climatology, atmospheric science, and that I was affected by the weather that I saw when I was young. And so I grew up outside of the Chicago area in northern Indiana in the Lake Effect Belt during the really cold winters, cold snowy winters of the mid to late 1970s. And so I remember the winters of 76, 77, 77, 78 vividly. You know, receiving almost 100 inches of snowfall in some of those winters. And, you know, not only an interest in climate, but interested in those places that are cold, interested in the cryosphere, that's the frozen portion of the earth, uh, snow, sea ice. And uh, that, that really stuck with me. So was that, so this is like most of the guests that we hear on Weather Geeks, it, early on, it sounds like this wasn't something later in your life. This always, stuck, even as a kid. This was something, I, it was interesting. I was back visiting my parents not long ago, and they had some old papers from when I was a middle school student, sixth sixth grade, I believe it was, and there was a, a sort of a career aptitude worksheet that we filled out, and at the time I mentioned my interest in at meteorology, climate science at that time. Yeah, and, and you know, even though we're going to be talking mostly about Greenland, 
a continent in crisis, if you will. Tom actually has done quite a bit of work on snow and uh, precipitation. We've got some interesting work that I know he's doing in Puerto Rico right now that's not cryosphere related, but uh, I'm, I'm going to use host uh, privileges here, and we're going to talk a little bit about some of that a little later in the podcast. But I want to circle back to Greenland. And before I, we really get into geeking out about Greenland, even today in the news, uh, there's this extensive flooding in Venice. With the, I don't know if you've been following what's going on there, but it's a major flooding in Venice, and it's related the high tides and whatnot. But the reason I'm bringing it up is um, the mayor of Venice uh, in in Italy has said that he blames climate change. And so this circles me back around to Greenland because Greenland is an ice sheet. It's a lot of fresh water there and people are concerned about what's going on there. So tell us why you became interested in doing research about Greenland. How did did you even get to that point? It started while I was a graduate student. So I was at the University of Nebraska where I did both of my graduate degrees, and I had been working with my doctoral advisor on a project involving Waddell Sea Ice, an area that he had been working in using remote sensing to look at changes in the sea ice in the Waddell Sea near Antarctica. Happened to have the opportunity to work with a gentleman who's passed away recently named Carl Quivenin, who had been the director for the Polar Ice Scoring Office, NSF office that had been located at the University of Nebraska. And he had been working in Greenland. We got to talking about all of the interesting science that was ongoing in Greenland. And it really, really just led from there. Uh, And so uh, we took some of the tools that we had been using to look at sea ice and wood LC and adapted them to looking at Greenland, specifically looking at surface melt on the Greenland ice sheet. That ended up becoming a doctoral research project for me. I had the opportunity to visit Greenland a couple of times during my doctoral work. And uh, continue to have an interest throughout my career in Greenland. Now, you know, again, I just want to set the stage talking to uh, Dr. Tom Move from the University of Georgia, distinguished research professor. He also has the Creative Research Medal from the University of Georgia, spent some time in Bra- Brazil on a Fulbright scholarship as well. So this is a colleague that knows his stuff and has been um, properly acknowledged for that in, in many ways. Now, if you visit the NSIDC website, I, I believe NSID stands for the National Snow Ice and Data Center or something close. Is that close National Snow National Ice Data Center? Uh, yes. Yeah. The reason I bring that up is that oftentimes uh, one of the satellite-based products that um, they use on their website to monitor and diagnose whether Greenland's undergoing melt or any, any sort of anomalous melt periods is a product that Dr. Moat and his group at the University of Georgia is producing using satellites. So let's just geek out on a 101 level because Weather Geek's listeners are cro- across the spectrum. First of all, how are you using satellite data or satellites to detect melt on the Greenland ice sheet? I mean, just the basics of that. Sure. We're using microwave uh, wavelength radiation. Uh, But unlike, say, a weather radar where you're looking at an emitted pulse and you're looking at the backscattered energy, in this case, we're looking at the emitted microwave energy from the snow and ice surface. And, you know, snow and ice surface at Greenland obviously is very cold. You have average temperatures that are well below zero Celsius. But When you look at the microwave energy that's emitted from the ice sheet, it typically looks even much colder. It looks like the surface of the ice should be something like minus 100 Celsius. Well, we know it's not quite that cold. And so, in fact, what happens is the individual snow grains on the surface of the ice sheet will scatter that radiation so it doesn't doesn't, uh, travel upward toward the satellite. And it, it makes it look like the surface is very cold. But as soon as we start to see a little bit of melt on the surface of the ice sheet, that effect quickly ends, and it looks suddenly much warmer. 
uh, closer to the freezing point. So we can see that really rapid increase in what we call the brightness temperature, the emitted microwave energy from the surface of the ice as soon as melt starts. And so we've been able to use that going back to the late 1970s, in fact, even with an earlier instrument back to the early 1970s, to essentially map how much of the surface of the ice sheet is melting on any given day. Right. And and I know that the, I, I, I've been aware of your work for some time, and I, I know there was a particular event, I believe it was at 2012? 2012, yeah, July 2012. 2012, there was a, and I remember this kind of unfolding in real time because I remember talking to you a little about it. And I, it, as I recall, I, I think you were even surprised at some of what you were seeing. Can you walk us back to 2012 and why that particular melt event in Greenland, Greenland was so significant and, and alarm scientists? Certainly. Uh, you know, I had been looking at mapping the surface area of, of um, the surface melt on the ice sheet sort of um, after the fact. I hadn't really been doing any work on this in a real-time basis. And of course, we're looking at other aspects of the climate uh, associated with uh, the, both the energy and the mass balance of the Greenland ice sheet. But I, I hadn't been working in Greenland. Uh, I hadn't been working on site in Greenland uh, for a number of years leading up to 2012. But I had a colleague of mine from Rutgers University who I still continue to work with, Osa Rennermalm. She happened to be working on the ice sheet at that time, and she actually contacted me, and she reached out and said, you know, I'd like you to look at some of the satellite data real time because we're seeing something really remarkable happening here. The Watson River, which is a major river that runs past a former U.S. air base at the, formerly the Sonderstrom Air Base, now the Greenlandic town of Kangalooswak, saw the, a bridge, and this bridge had been there for decades, wash out. And this bridge washed out from meltwater coming off of the ice sheet. She said, you, you need to look at the satellite product and see what's happening. And so we took a look at it and saw that essentially the entire surface of the ice sheet was melting and something that we hadn't seen before, including even up to the highest elevations of the ice sheet that reach over 10,000 feet. That's over 10,000 feet above sea level. So these are places where the average temperature is something like minus 30 Celsius. I mean, these are very cold areas. Uh, and, you know, we went on to publish some work from that and some of, the, uh, some of our colleagues who have looked at some of the ice cores from the what we call summit, the highest elevation of the ice sheet, were finding that they had not seen any ice layers that had formed uh, prior to this event uh, since the 1880s. And before that, we think the last time that we saw a melt event at the highest elevations of the ice sheet probably was somewhere around the year 1100. Yes. So this was really an unusual event. An anomalous event, and, and certainly there was evidence that you'd seen it before in a natural record, because I know that there will be some that say, well, I'm sure this has happened naturally, and I want to kind of get into this sort of natural variability to weather-related uh, aspects of this and the climate change aspects. But fast forward to recent times as well, and I want to read some notes provided by our, our producer of this particular podcast, Sarah Dillingham, who's a former student of both of ours. I remember uh, Sarah well. Yeah, Sarah Dillingham here at the um, at the Weather Channel. Uh, Sarah writes, on June 13th of this year, 2019, Greenland experienced more than two gigatons of ice melt in one day. Uh, you were quoted in an article saying that this was unusual but not unprecedented. Now, you've just given us context for the 2012 event. Tell us about why or how this more recent event fits in the context with that event and other events. This year was a very interesting summer. So we had this very large melt event in 2012. In fact, if you look at the amount of melt and the amount of mass loss from Greenland, we've seen this really accelerating loss through since about 1998 and really peaking in 2012. And we saw a, 
a year following that in 2013 that was much cooler than we had seen in the past two decades, or most of the past two decades. But then we've again seen a number of years with um, greater than average melt and greater than average loss of ice from the ice sheet. But this year was really kind of unusual in that we saw a, a, quite a bit of melt occurring on the ice sheet, but it occurred mostly very early in the summer season and again really late in the summer season. So we had this really large melt event, loss of a lot of ice in early June. We typically see a peak in melt sometime around the beginning of July, usually the first two weeks of July. And we had fairly typical conditions this year. But then we had a really large melt event again at the very end of July and the beginning of August, sort of the, which is sort of tends to be toward the end of the melt season in Greenland. That later event was particularly interesting because it followed immediately after the European heat wave that occurred in late July. So if you may remember, we had this heat wave that occurred, temperatures well above 100 degrees Fahrenheit in parts of France, the Benelux countries, across much of continental Europe. A few days later, after that, we saw another melt event across that started in eastern part of Greenland. Most of the time, these melt events come across western Greenland, move up higher and higher elevations. This one came across from the east, uh, eastern Greenland, and actually we saw, again, melt at the highest elevation of the ice sheet this summer. Uh, but we were able to go back. We've, I'm, I'm doing some work with some of my students now, and we actually have been able to go back and track the origins of this late July event to the European heat wave. Oh, wow. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm talking with Dr. Tom Mote from the University of Georgia about all things Greenland from a science perspective. Uh, he's uh, studied Greenland from satellites. He's been on the Greenland ice sheet. So uh, he looks at Greenland from various perspectives, whether they be uh, atmospheric sciences related, climatologically, geographically. So we have the person, if you want to know about climate and Greenland. And I want to kind of circle back to some sort of teaser I mentioned earlier in the podcast where I was talking about sea level rise. Talk to us and the listeners about this sort of notion, because you hear these sort of notions, well, if Greenland melts, sea level is going to rise 20 feet or these types of things. And we, we know that's a bit hyperbolic. But talk about the importance of sort of this, these melt processes from a standpoint of sort of Greenland and cryospheric dynamics, if you will, but also from a sea level perspective. Why, why do we care? What's the so what Greenland is melting? Well, Greenland has been one of the most uh, significant contributors to changes in global sea level, and it's also been one that over the past two decades has been increasing most rapidly. So Greenland by itself, I mean, you're, you're correct in that if you looked at the total amount of ice in the Greenland ice sheet and you were to melt it all today, it would contribute about 23 feet to global sea level. So that's a tremendous potential contribution there. The amount of the, the actual contribution that we have been seeing has been on the order of around a millimeter per year. So that's a fairly small contribution, it sounds like, if you know, you know, look at it, what a millimeter is, it's not that much. But, of course, this is cumulative. And, of course, it's just one contribution to global sea level. Uh, it's interesting. If you go back and look at the 1960s, 1970s, and 1980s, Greenland was 
basically in balance. We were seeing about as much snow falling as we were losing through melting and through icebergs calving off along the margins. Uh, it's really been since about the late 1990s that we've seen an accelerating loss of mass from the ice sheet. Give you kind of a sense of numbers. And, and, and by the way, we have some other really cool satellite tools that we've been able to use to look at the total mass balance of the ice sheet. One of them is an instrument called GRACE, and I don't know if that's something you've talked oh, about yeah, on your we, podcast before. We or, have mentioned GRACE. It's a really cool, but feel free to sort of uh, talk about how it's sort of irrelevant to this particular problem, these twin satellites that are very sensitive to gravimetric changes. So we can use that to essentially weigh the ice sheet. Yeah. And when you do that, you can actually see how somewhat like myself, pick up a little bit of mass during the winter. When uh, <laughs> go through the holiday season, eat a little bit too much, you pick up a little bit of mass. You can see that with the ice sheet, too. It <laughs> gains mass over the winter as the snow is falling, but it's not losing much. Right. And then during the summer, you can see these very rapid losses of mass. And then from year to year, you can track what the total mass loss is. And so it was, it was a really great satellite tool that, that went back from... Uh, 2002. Recently, we lost the GRACE satellite, but then, of course, we now have the GRACE follow-on mission that started producing scientific data this year. We can extend that record back in time through the use of models and through the use of other kinds of satellite data, like Landsat imagery. And we know that through the 1960s, 1970s, 1980s, that Greenland was roughly in balance. It was gaining about as much ice through snowfall as it was losing through melting and icebergs calving off. But again, since about 1998, we've seen a very significant loss of mass from Greenland on the order in the past decade or so of about 280 gigatons of ice per year. Wow. Roughly takes about 360 gigatons of ice to uh, equal one millimeter of sea level rise. Wow. So, yeah, th so there's, there's the so what. And uh, I, I think many climatologists see Greenland and, and the West Arctic ice sheet and others as sort of bellwethers or, or canaries in coal mines, if you will. I know some people are wondering, because you mentioned past melt events before we had satellites, how do we get at that type of information before the era of satellite? So a couple of ways. One is that we have we do have temperature records, and we can use those temperature records uh, with models that we have to be able to, even though the temperature records themselves are the long-term temperature records are from coastal stations that are not on the ice sheet, uh, only there's about 10% of them the margin of Greenland that is not covered by ice. But we can use that with models to, uh, you know, to reconstruct what the melt record looked like on the ice sheet. But we also can look at ice cores. So you can actually look at annual layers in the ice cores, and you can see where there are melt layers that formed. That's how we know, for example, that this 2012 event, and again, 2019 event, that occurred at the top of the ice sheet, we know that there were previous melt events again in the 1880s, and then back uh, prior to that during essentially the medieval warm period. Yeah, and, and these climate proxies are very commonly used in climate science. We use um, you know, ice cores. Uh, we have a colleague at the University of Georgia that core, does lake sediment cores, um, tree rings. And I often get that question, and they're quite accurate. Would you, when you get the question, well, how, how, how accurate are these ice cores, what do you say? Well, I mean, it's very, you can see very clearly the annual layers in these cores going back for, uh, in many cases, thousands of years. 
And we can also date these quite accurately. There are certain events that we know in terms of volcanic eruptions or even nuclear testing we can use to date very particular years in those records. And then going back further in time, we have enough uh, other kinds of records that you can put them together and get very accurate reconstructions of dates, certainly within the past few thousand years and really very accurate reconstructions much further back in time than that. Talking with Dr. Tom Mode, a climatologist at the University of Georgia, uh, one of the most significant scientists. Look, to be a fellow of two major professional societies is a significant honor. So I always like to establish that you know, here, here on Weather Geeks, we're, we're getting experts that can cut through a lot of what you might hear about the science and give you the, the science as you need to understand it and hear it. So we, we thank Dr. Tom Mode for taking time to, to appear on Weather Geeks. I want to now shift the discussion to sort of causation with these melt events, these episodic events, and then perhaps the longer term changes. Because I know from some of your work that there are these things that are happening in the atmosphere. We can geek out on some weather terms, talking about atmospheric rivers and blocking highs and sort of weather related. So let's talk about sort of perhaps these sort of short term weather related influences on these melt events and then maybe set a a larger context to climate change. Certainly. I mean, a lot of our work in the last five years has really been focused on looking at atmospheric blocking patterns and how they're associated with uh, large melt events on Greenland. We know, for example, with this 2012 event that we saw a very uh, pronounced atmospheric blocking pattern that set up across the North Atlantic. Now, when you say blocking pattern, for those that may not know what a block, are you talking about a large blocking high? So we're talking about a large blocking ridge located across the North Atlantic, uh, persistent in time. Uh, bringing in many cases, uh, you know, on its um, western flank, also advecting lar- uh, warm, humid air masses right. up across the ice sheet. Uh, and, and we see these blocking patterns tend to be very persistent across Greenland when we have a negative phase to the North Atlantic Oscillation. Oh, now, there's a nice geeky term that we probably need to uh, spend a little time on. So what's the Arctic Oscillation? Well, in this case, we're just talking about the North Atlantic Oscillation, which is related to the Arctic ah, Oscillation. Okay, so the NAO, okay. And the North Atlantic Oscillation is essentially a seesaw in pressure and temperatures between the subtropics of the Atlantic and the higher latitudes of the Atlantic. And so when we have a positive phase, we tend to have higher pressure and warmer temperatures in the tropics. When we have a negative phase, we tend to have higher temperatures and higher pressures in the northern portion of the Atlantic. And we, when we see that, we tend to see these persistent blocking patterns occur that are often, if they occur in the summer, are often associated with large melt events and large mass loss events across Greenland. So that's one of the things we've looked at. And then with one of my former PhD students who's now at Rutgers University, Kyle Mattingly, we've been really looking at these atmospheric river events. So atmospheric rivers are a phenomenon, especially those in the western United States are very familiar with. Absolutely. Think about the Pineapple Express bringing in these plumes of moisture into the west. We also know that atmospheric rivers are very important for injecting moisture into the Arctic. And we find that when these atmospheric river events are active, that they're bringing in They're bringing in warm air, but they're also bringing in, in many cases, thick, low, water-bearing clouds that are also very important in melt processes in the ice sheet because these low liquid liquid, uh, uh, phase clouds uh, produce a lot of downwelling long-wave energy that helps keep the ice sheet warm and leads to these melt events. Right. So we see that there are these meteorological connections. And so... 
important point I want to make here because there there are some in the world that say climate scientists are overreacting and they sort of just jump right to the climate change linkages. Now, what you just heard Dr. Moat talk about were sort of atmospheric circulation and patterns that we know are associated with these melt events. And you heard him mention earlier this most recent event in 2019 was very much related to the extreme heat wave in Europe. And I'm sure that's related to the, the ridge or blocking pattern that you heard him talk about. However, we cannot sort of divorce ourselves from the notion that there are changes that may be happening in the Greenland ice sheet that are happening, I'm going to say, related to sort of a warming climate system, too. So we know the climate system is warming. So Tom, Set, put put in perspective the broader responses of Greenland to the broader climate changes. Certainly. I mean, Green, there's no doubt that the Greenland ice sheet, uh, the climate of the Greenland ice sheet, and therefore the mass balance, the loss of ice from the ice sheet, is related to the warming in the Arctic. And we know that the warming in the Arctic is amplified compared to what we see in lower latitudes. So, uh, and, and that's been documented very clearly just simply by looking at the temperature records from Greenland. So we can see uh, this correspondence between increasing temperatures in coastal Greenland and increasing mat loss of mass over the last several decades, particularly the last two decades, from the ice sheet. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. And we are talking with Dr. Tom Mode as we come back to the Weather Geeks podcast. He's a distinguished research professor at the University of Georgia, is associate dean in the Franklin College of Arts and Sciences, and has received numerous awards for his work over the years in climatology, geography, atmospheric sciences, and so forth. It's really an honor to have him here today uh, because I do consider him one of the world's top experts on melt. By the way, you can check out a couple of uh, pieces that he wrote in The Hill, which is a, a journal journalistic outlet, um, and they sought his expertise during the 2019 or post-2019 melt event. So if you want to read a little bit more about some of his thoughts on this most recent event, definitely check out uh, his work and writing in The Hill. Uh, if you just do a Google search on Tom Moden, The Hill, I bet you find it. Now I want to come back to some of the more local and regional impacts on these melt events. For example, when we get these melt events, how is it affecting the local ecosystems or perhaps even the, the marine environment? So we, you know, we actually had a very interesting project with uh, my colleagues Tish Yeager and Renato Castellau at the University of Georgia and colleagues at Stanford University, Columbia University, and Rutgers University that was supported by NASA where we were looking at the interaction between climate, Greenland mass balance, runoff of meltwater, uh, ocean circulation in the nearby seas, and then ocean productivity. Uh, really, really fascinating work, I think, showing that when we see these large runoff events from Greenland, of course, as fresh water goes into the Atlantic Ocean, uh, it influences the, the, the essentially the, the depth of this uh, uh, freshwater layer. This creates this freshwater lens at the surface that affects essentially the ability of phytoplankton to uh, uh, to uh, be productive. And so, uh, you know, 
it's a very complicated picture because it's not just related to the amount of water that's running off from the Greenland ice sheet, but it's also related to uh, wind patterns and and the resulting uh, ocean circulation patterns as well, too. Uh, But we certainly do see a, a significant influence of Greenland meltwater runoff on ocean productivity in Baffin Bay, for example, and Labrador Sea. And, and it's really interesting. This is something that may be lost on people that just don't think about these things every day, but the differences between this sort of influx of fresh water into the ocean, which is a saltwater system, uh, has significant influences on things like the large thermal haline or conveyor belt circulation. If you ever saw the movie The Day After Tomorrow, uh, that movie was talking about the sort of disruption or shutdown of that circulation and the world's weather went crazy. And of course, the things that happen in that movie are sort of Hollywood. They're not going really happen at that scale. But it's important to sort of note that. By the way, another little weather geek tidbit, bit, just something that I do, and I'm just a geek like that. Sometimes when I go to restaurants, I will take the glass and mix diet soda with sort of a very sweet soda, like a Mountain Dew. And just because they're of different densities, watch what happens when you put one in first and put the other in. And you can see the differences in densities when we're talking about fluids. And so some of those sort of simple concepts are what we're talking about when we talk about fresh water water and salt water. Now, the producers actually wanted me to ask you about the connections of Saharan dust to Greenland. Yes. This was sort of uh, some research that, uh, just an opportunity that came out of the blue uh, with a colleague at NYU, New York University's Abu Dhabi campus. They have a center for sea level research located there. They have a scholar there who was looking at Saharan dust transport, and she was noticing this dust transport actually into the North Atlantic across Europe and wanted to determine what kind of influence there was on melting process on Greenland. I mean, the surface of the Greenland ice sheet is very sensitive to the reflectivity albedo. Uh, Snow, obviously very bright, reflective. Once it starts to melt and refreeze, becomes a little bit darker, absorbs more energy. Eventually, you melt away all of the seasonal snow cover. You get down to glacial ice. It absorbs even more energy. But we also have other sort of uh, contaminants, if you will, whether it be uh, black carbon from fires in the Arctic, whether it's uh, dust that might be, in this case, come from the Sahara. Another actual uh, something else that we're really interested in that has a significant effect on the reflectivity of the ice uh, is uh, blue-green algae. So we see cyanobacteria, and that has a very large influence on the reflectivity. So there are areas of the ice sheet that have been documented as darkening over the last several years. Now, Saharan dust is probably not the most important player here. But haven't people, I know you you and I know a colleague, Jason Box, that talks about soot and sort of black carbon. So Jason has been looking at black carbon. He's also, there there are others, uh, colleagues I know, I was just talking to it when I had a recent visit to Rutgers University, were looking at the influence of cyanobacteria on reflectivity, uh, particularly within these river systems that develop on the surface of the ice as it starts to melt in the summer. Uh, Jason Box, who used to be at Ohio State University, is now at the Danish Meteorological Institute uh, and the University of Copenhagen. He uh, actually has a satellite product where he looks at how bright the surface of the ice sheet is, and he's been able to clearly document darkening of the surface of the ice sheet over time as we've seen this increased melting. Yeah, and your your eyes are 
your eyes are sensitive to some of these very processes that we're talking about. If you go out on a very bright, sunny day and you had a fresh snow cover, you ever heard of the concept of being snow blind? And that's because of the high albedo or reflectivity of snow and your eye is a remote sensor. It's just using the visible where some of these satellites are using different parts of the electromagnetic spectrum. So this is really a good discussion of how we use some of those remote sensing techniques to study various aspects of the the system. Now, I want to kind of shift to a sort of a final phase of questioning. I want to stay in the cryosphere a second, then we're going to go some different places. But again, weather geeks who really do like to geek out and sort of educate our listeners, talk to us about what what the ice albedo feedbacks are and why we're so important, uh, why we're so concerned about sort of changes in ice cover in the Arctic region as a whole, because I, I, we often hear about that positive feedback. Yeah, so when we talk about Arctic amplification, we're talking about increased warming in the Arctic relative to lower latitudes. And there are different reasons for that. One of the one of the reasons actually has to do with atmospheric water vapor, and water vapor, of course, is a greenhouse gas as well. But some of it also has to do with the decreases in the snow and ice-covered surfaces. So it could be a loss of seasonal snow cover. And we know that we've had a significant loss of seasonal snow cover in springtime. You've, Our, done, you've done work in that area, too. I have. My colleague, Dave Robinson, at Rutgers University, this is an area that he's, he's carefully documented are the changes in spring snow cover across the northern hemisphere. Loss of sea ice, that's been well documented. That has an effect. Of course, in the winter, high latitudes are going to be dark anyway. So the ice albedo feedback is not going to be as important during the winter. It will be much more important during the during the summer, of course. Right. Now, the other thing that I wanted, and I've been getting a lot of questions about this, particularly as we've moved out of the Paris Agreement, those types of things. You often hear scientists talk about tipping points in the climate system and why we need to keep warming below 2 degrees Celsius or even 1.5 degrees Celsius. Do you consider Greenland a tipping point? And if it is, what at what point does it tip? You know, that's a really interesting question because there's a lot of debate about that right now regarding whether we've actually reached a tipping point with Greenland. And essentially, we've reached a point where we're beyond where we could recover uh, a stable uh, mass balance for the ice sheet. And I think that's still an open area of, of scholarship at this point. I don't think we have a definitive answer for that yet. But it's, it's interesting in, to compare Greenland to Antarctica for just a minute. So Greenland has only about a tenth of the ice that Antarctica has. Uh, about 90% of the fresh water in the globe is tied up in the Antarctic ice sheet, about 9% in the Greenland ice sheet. But Antarctica sits right over the South Pole. Greenland actually extends quite far south, down well below the Arctic Circle. In fact, the southern tip of Greenland is... Uh, comparable to some of the capital cities of Scandinavia in yeah, terms of you, latitude. Yeah, if you fly from Europe to the U.S., you'll so fly you, over you southern, fly southern over southern Greenland. I know I've seen that in the past. Exactly, I've flown over over southern Greenland in route to Europe before as well. And so, because it sits relatively at a relatively low latitude, it is much more susceptible to melting than most of the Antarctic ice sheet is. Now, there are other reasons why we might be why we are concerned about the Antarctic ice sheet as well. Uh, but just in terms of the the summer melting that we see, it's much more pronounced on the Greenland ice sheet because of the relatively low latitude. Now, I, I know we're doing a multi-part series on Greenland for the Weather Geeks podcast, and we spoke with Dave Malkoff, who spent some time on a glacier there in Greenland. And I, I don't even know if I'm going to pronounce it correctly, but during my time at NASA, I know colleagues were talking about the Jakobs, that starts with a J. Jakobshavn. Jakobshavn Glacier. And I know that People have been monitoring its rate of change, if you will. How, how is it and other glaciers doing in general on Greenland? 
So we've seen uh, over the past few decades an accelerated loss of mass. So when you think about, we talk about the mass balance of the ice sheet. We have snow that lands on, in, on collects on the surface of the ice sheet and eventually compresses into fern and then into glacial ice. And then we have two different ways in which we can lose ice. We could have melting of the surface and that meltwater forms rivers and it drains into what we call moulins, which are actually holes in the ice that drain down to the base. And then usually it comes out uh, beneath the surface of the, of the ice sheet along the margins. The other way is that we can calve off icebergs at the margins as well too, especially for glaciers that end in marine, marine terminating glaciers end in the ocean. Jakobshaven is one of the fastest moving ice streams on the globe. So the ice itself, I always tell my students, it's not like a giant ice cube. It's dynamic. It's flowing out to the margins. Some of these areas are flowing very fast. Some of them are flowing fairly slow. Jakobshaven is an area on the west coast of Greenland where the ice is moving very, very fast. And it's a beautiful area if you get to go to the, the town of Jakobshaven, Disco Bay area there. Uh, there's a, a, a hotel there, the Arctic Hotel, where you have this beautiful, uh, beautiful view, actually, of the ocean and all of the icebergs calving off into the ocean there. Uh, but uh, it's actually said that, and there, there's no way to really know this, but it's said that the iceberg that sunk the Titanic probably came off of the uh, uh, yeah, there's, there's a nice little weather geeks tidbit you might not hear anywhere else. I actually want to use this last segment of the, the podcast now because Dr. Moat's an expert on cryospheric processes, Greenland and whatnot. And I, I, I know because I'm a colleague of his, first of all, that he does a lot of other interesting things. So talk about some of your more uh, recent research that is not necessarily cry. I, I mean, I, for example, I know you're involved in, and let me, by the way, Dr. Moat has uh, his works are funded by NASA, NOAA, National Science Foundation, U.S. Forest Service, and, and many others because, you know, he's been able to uh, successfully sort of connect convey his science, and, and it's, it's dutiful and useful science, and so um, he can acquire funding. And so he uses satellite perspective, he uses remote sensing uh, observations, models, and so forth. Talk about what you're up to in Puerto Rico. That's been a thread of research that we've been involved in for about the past six or seven years now. It was actually a, a, a project, I believe, that they originally wanted to entrain you yeah, into. Yeah, I think I, I was involved in something else at the time. You're <laughs> but right. you were you were you were tied up. They were they were very interested in looking at the influence of climate change on these um, really uh, these rich areas of biodiversity in eastern Puerto Rico in the Luquillo Mountains near San Juan. So if you've ever had a chance to go to San Juan, maybe you've been there on a cruise ship, you can actually look out in the distance and you can see these mountains. And, and often people who visit uh, Puerto Rico will have a chance to take a visit, uh, will have a chance to, to go inland and visit these mountains. Really a, a, a stunningly beautiful area. Uh, but the question is, how is climate change influencing the ecosystem of these mountains? And so our, our task with this uh, long-term ecological research program at Luquillo, Puerto Rico, has been looking at uh, particularly the role of drought and hurricanes on, uh, on, on this really unique setting. One of the things that we've done recently was to look at, you mentioned Saharan dust earlier. We've been looking at the role of Saharan dust in producing droughts in this region. Uh, and we're continuing to to uh, uh, look at other mechanisms associated with drought in this area too, because we do expect that droughts will become more frequent and more intense with the changing climate in the Caribbean, particularly this part of the Caribbean. All right. 
That, yeah, and I, and I think you know, Dr. Moat makes a, a, a great point about um, extreme events and sort of this notion of attribution science, which is becoming uh, quite uh, significant in the research field. What do we expect to happen in current or contemporary extreme weather events? And uh, based on things that I've talked to him about before, that area is a particularly sensitive area in terms of drought to some of these changes we're seeing. We, we are winding down now, but I, I want to ask Dr. Moat to put on his sort of bigger picture. I mean, he's a leader in the field. I mean, he's a he's a leader in the science. He's been on sort of the executive councils of the AAG and has all of these awards. He's a, an associate dean at a major research university. So I, I want to just ask one final question. If you're talking to the broader public, what would you say about the importance of, and I know you're in your portfolio at UGA, you deal with the sciences. What would you say about the importance of scientific research and development, and how does that sort of get to their lives? What are the what is what is your view on the overall research enterprise? Because I just think people we are very familiar with it, but I'm always interested in thoughts from colleagues about how we can convey to the broader public the importance of research. I mean, it's really the only, I mean, it's the mechanism that we have to learn about the world around us. So, I mean, I think it, particularly in this time, it's really important to talk about evidence, evidence-based, whether we're talking about um, uh, social systems, whether we're talking about natural systems, uh, the, the, the importance of, of really carefully scrutinizing evidence that's available. I mean, this comes up in the climate change debate. There's a, I, I know you hear this question more often than I do. Do you believe in climate sure, change? But it's, it's, it's not a question of belief. It's a question of looking at evidence and where evidence points us. And that's what really science is all about, is looking at, critically looking at evidence, uh, drawing uh, hypotheses, testing those hypotheses based on that evidence, and taking us where it leads us. And, and, a, and a place like the university, again, I want you to wear your university hat a little bit, a place like the University of Georgia, since that's where you are and I am, how does that, a university, and we'll use that, I mean, we're talking about any university, how do they play a role as a university? I mean, because it's more than just teaching students, which is a valuable part of our mission. But how do, how do, the, how do the universities sort of inject this knowledge into the state, local, national, international sort of stakeholder and uh, practitioner practices, if you will? You know, it's interesting. I think, particularly as a public institution, we're uh, the first state charter university in the in the country, at the University of Georgia, and particularly as a, as a representatives of a public institution, I think we have an obligation to the people of the state of Georgia, uh, people more broadly, but particularly the people of the state of Georgia, to share what we've learned. It's not enough for us to just kind of keep it to ourselves. Uh, and I think that there are many ways that we do that. I think the University of Georgia, for example, has a, a really tremendous public service and outreach function uh, that reaches, touches all corners of this state. And so I, I'm, I'm constantly impressed by my colleagues and the work that they do in, in what we call our PSO unit. I think the kinds of things that you do, whether through this podcast or the other kinds of outreach activities that you are engaged in that are more uh, sort of broad-based, publicly focused, uh, I think are also important. Um, I think the, the, the many of our colleagues are actively reaching out in the popular press as well, too. I think all of those forms of engagement are really important. I don't think there's sort of any one particular form of engagement that uh, is, is privileged or most important. I think uh, all of the above approach here in terms of really communicating the science that, that we're working on to the, to the public – particularly yeah. the public of our state. Absolutely. Uh, now, now, I know you're on Twitter, and uh, what's your Twitter handle if people want to follow you? 
at TL Moat, okay. M-O-T-E. Yeah, at TL Moat. So definitely give him a follow. And Tom, I want to thank you as a colleague and as a friend for coming on the Weather Geeks podcast because I knew you'd be a great guest to really break down the science in a way that our, our listenership can really understand it. So thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. And that's been another episode of the Weather Geeks podcast. If you want more of Weather Geeks, continue to follow us. If you are, are following us or if you're new, go follow us on Twitter uh, at Weather Geeks. We're also on Facebook. We'll see you next time on Weather Geeks. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia.